You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Quest for Sustainable Business, an epic journey in search of corporate responsibility. Governance and Greed, Accounting for Impacts, Hunting the Dragon. The concept of shared value became increasingly important for business in South Africa during the 1990s, long before it was coined by the Harvard academic duo of Porter and Kramer. Fortunately for me, I had a front row seat. In 1997, having helped to kickstart the SANE Foundation, I then joined the global accounting firm KPMG. My mandate was to establish an environmental unit, which later evolved into social, economic and ethical dimensions and became KPMG Sustainability Services. Over the next six years, I advised numerous companies, many of them multinationals, on how to improve their sustainability performance, covering areas as diverse as sustainability reporting, environmental due diligence, ISO 14001 certification, integrated auditing, environmental accounting, non-financial report verification, climate strategy, carbon trading, corporate governance, business ethics and social transformation, including black economic empowerment. When I look back, these were incredible years and I was privileged to experience them. More often than not, I found myself out on client sites, donning safety gear, helmets and goggles, touring chemical plants and mine pits, inspecting factories and farms, even checking out sewage treatment plants and hazardous waste sites. At other times I gazed over breathtakingly beautiful corporate-owned and managed wildlife conservation areas, or kicked back in plush marble-clad colonial-era head office executive suites. Sometimes looking back, my experiences seem surreal, I have stood in the shadow of monstrous machines, some of them several stories high, gouging at the earth and desperate communities, sick and with failing crops as a result of industrial pollution. I have seen moonscapes where in the wake of industrial activity nothing will grow and black tar pits so noxious that birds flying overhead were known to plummet to a sticky death. I've seen a dead mountainside, poisoned with arsenic, which is used in gold refining, and listened gobsmacked as the CEO told me that NGOs are not stakeholders, they're the enemy. And yet over the same period of time, I also witnessed hundreds of examples of a commitment to improve sustainability performance and reduce impacts. Almost daily, I met industry-hardened managers that cared deeply about the environment and were working passionately for social justice. Reflecting on those years of sustainability consulting at the coalface, I later wrote a poem called The Dragon, which begins with the following description. I have stalked the dragon for many a year, followed its trail and sought out its lair, seen it belch smoke and felt its hot breath counted its legacy of both life and death. So what of lessons? 
There are two that I want to share, and both are areas in which I believe South Africa has made a contribution significantly to the worldwide quest for sustainable business. The first is corporate governance, and the second is economic empowerment. Expanding Director's Duties Following the success of the UK's Cadbury report in 1992, South Africa launched its own King Report on Corporate Governance in 1994 under the chairmanship of former High Court Judge and Company Director Mervyn E. King, not to be confused with Britain's Governor of the Reserve Bank. King went much further than Cadbury in recognising the non-financial aspects of corporate governance and incorporating the concept of wider stakeholder accountability. The reasons are not hard to fathom and have to do with the operating context. At the time, London was still one of the great financial capitals of the world, while South Africa was having its first democratic elections. In later updates, the King Report placed sustainability and responsibility at the heart of corporate governance. King too in 2002, for instance, included a substantial section on business ethics and an entire chapter on integrated sustainability reporting, heavily referencing the Global Reporting Initiative and AA1000. King 3 in 2009 goes even further. As Mervyn King puts it, the philosophy of King 3 revolves around leadership, sustainability and corporate citizenship. Speaking to me in 2010, King reiterated his belief that directors are accountable to the company first, not shareholders, and that a broader set of stakeholders provide a better perspective on what is good for the company in the long term. It is no coincidence, and I believe to the organization's credit, that Mervyn King went on to chair the Global Reporting Initiative. Although the King Report, like other corporate governance codes around the world, is a voluntary standard, the Johannesburg Securities Exchange, or JSE, made compliance with the code a listing requirement. This had a dramatic effect. At KPMG, I started doing annual sustainability reporting surveys in 1998, and in 2003, we looked specifically at the reporting requirements of the newly launched King 2 Code we found that 85% of South Africa's top companies were practicing annual reporting on sustainability-related issues, and 77% of the companies referenced the existence of an internal code of ethics or code of corporate conduct. There is a downside to the strong sustainability reporting trend, evident not only in South Africa but around the world. I believe it has distracted us from a related and in some ways far more important trend, namely social and environmental accounting. This refers to financially quantifying the social and environmental impacts of business, or to use economics jargon, pricing the externalities. As it happened, my second project at KPMG back in 1998 was to help a large chemical company design an environmental accounting system which formed the basis of two research reports that we published on the subject. At the time, social and environmental accounting was a strongly emerging field under the intellectual leadership of UK academic Rob Gray 
and the pioneering efforts of companies like British Telecommunications, Baxter International and Ontario Hydro. Unfortunately, I think GRI and its targeted corporate users realized that measuring and reporting physical impacts was far easier, not to mention less controversial and less risky than financially quantifying corporate externalities. And yet, the importance of doing this cannot be underestimated. For example, a 2010 study conducted by the UN uh, by Truecast found that the combined damage of the world's 3,000 biggest companies was equivalent to $2.2 trillion dollars in 2008, a figure bigger than the national economies of all but seven countries in the world that year, and equal to one-third of the average profits of those companies. I sincerely hope that having gone through the GRI learning curve, we will once again return to full-cost accounting. Anything less amounts to a superficial and misleading representation of the impacts of business on society, the environment and the economy. Power to the people. The second lesson that I took away from my time with KPMG in South Africa has to do with the issue of Black Economic Empowerment, or BEE, which has strong resonance to later concepts of bottom of the pyramid or BOP strategies, inclusive business and corporate shared value. First, it is important to understand the context in which black economic empowerment emerged. When the new democratically elected African National Congress or ANC government came into power in 1994 under the leadership of Nelson Mandela, South Africa's growth had been stalling for a decade. GDP growth was averaging less than 1% a year, around 23% of the population were unemployed, and 57% were living below the poverty line. The ANC government's response, in the form of its Growth, Employment and Redistribution, or GEAR, macroeconomic strategy, managed to boost South Africa's annual growth to 5.6% by 2007, when the global recession hit. However, serious concerns remained about the concentration of wealth in relatively few hands, typically white-owned multinationals and high-net-worth individuals. As the Department of Trade and Industry put it, societies characterized by entrenched gender inequality or racially or ethnically defined wealth disparities are not likely to be socially and politically stable particularly as economic growth can easily exacerbate these inequalities. As a direct consequence, the government introduced a new piece of legislation, the Broad-Based Black Economic Empowerment Act of 2003. This was further entrenched by various codes of good practice in 2007 to provide a standard framework for the measurement of black economic empowerment across all sectors of the economy, The so-called BBBEE scorecard was designed to cover seven areas, namely ownership, management control, employment equity, skills development, preferential procurement, enterprise development and socio-economic development, including industry-specific and corporate social investment initiatives. 
The codes became binding on all state bodies and public companies, and the government was required to apply their criteria when making economic decisions on procurement, licensing and concessions, as well as public-private partnerships and the sale of state-owned assets or businesses. Private companies were also required to apply these codes if they wanted to do business with any government enterprise or organ of the state. As a result, many industry sectors have, following an extensive stakeholder engagement, created their own voluntary black economic empowerment charters, known also as sector codes, which have subsequently become legally binding commitments. The question is, have all of these efforts been effective in creating a more inclusive economy? And what can other countries and companies learn from South Africa's experience? Despite widespread criticism that black economic empowerment has simply created a new black elite class, the statistics show that the policy has been effective, although moderately, in growing a black middle class. Overall, the proportion of middle class households in South Africa grew from 23% to 26% between 1998 and 2006. Among urban African households, the middle class comprised 22% in 2006, up from 15% in 1998, as compared with 48% of coloured households or mixed race, up from 41%, 75% of Asian households, which was unchanged, and 85% of white households, also unchanged. Almost no rural African households had achieved a middle-class standard of living by 2006. While there is a clear historical racial element to these statistics in South Africa, I believe they also tell us something about how difficult it is to achieve a genuinely inclusive, equitable economy under modern capitalism. The rich and powerful tend to concentrate, reinforce and protect their wealth and influence, irrespective of race and other characteristics. Hence, I believe we will need much more than new jargon like shared value or greater transparency in the form of value-added statements to reverse the trickle-up economics that is hardwired into our Western capitalist system. Sustainable business practices can certainly play their part in advancing the cause of improved equity, but it will need a strong policy set of incentives as well as sustained civil society activism if real change is to be achieved. Beyond Reasonable Greed Apart from lessons learned from my time running KPMG's sustainability services in South Africa, of course there are also stories, anecdotes that serve to enlighten and sometimes to amuse. For example, there was the case of a company that was granted a legal license to operate to create an open-cast coal strip mine on the banks of the Vaal River, except they forgot to ask the local community about it. An environmental NGO took the company to South Africa's constitutional court and won on the grounds that the public had a basic human right to be consulted. Then there was the pulp and paper company that faced the challenge of their forests periodically and mysteriously burning down until someone suggested providing access to the poor local community so that they could harvest mushrooms and honey. Hey presto, no more burning forests. 
There's the story of members of my team visiting Nigeria to do environmental audits and having their oil company host's car surrounded by an angry mob with baseball bats. After that, they flew everywhere by helicopter and were accompanied by an armed guard. I also recall a somewhat more amusing instance in which one company, like many others in South Africa, suffered at the hands of thieves. Usually it is copper wire that is stolen, but on this particular occasion, they awoke one morning to find that the road outside their factory had been stolen. Literally, someone had dug up the tarmac and taken it away. There are many more anecdotes like this, so-called war stories from the field. A desire to capture these experiences and make sense of them is what led me to write my first book, Beyond Reasonable Greed. The book, which took two years to write and was the realization of a ten-year-old ambition, was essentially a way of capturing a chapter of learning in my professional life. It enjoyed great success, ranking on the Sunday Times bestseller list, in part due to the national celebrity status of my co-author, Clem Sunter. Sunter had made a name for himself in business by becoming chairman of Anglo-American's Gold Division. The wider public knew him better as a highly celebrated scenario planner and prolific author. Our book together succeeded, I believe, because it struck a healthy balance between information, metaphor, questioning, illustration and invitation to action. As someone from Sustainable Asset Management commented, you managed to make the whole sustainability story very accessible and exciting. The title for the book was Santa's Idea, picking up on the Enron and Worldcom fiascos that were in the process of unfolding. Having greed in the title certainly made for very good PR, but I'm not sure it properly captured the spirit of the book and its message. I still prefer my original title, Shapeshifting, since the essence of the book was a call to transform at every level. Changing the habit of greed is just one small part of the solution. In the book, we explore the tyranny of our political, economic and business systems, which may be rational and reasonable at the level of individual decisions, but add up to a collective insanity with disastrous consequences. I also wanted to make the point that it is the duty of society, of all of us together, to be the nagging conscience of business by applying sufficient moral and ethical pressure to make certain behavior socially unacceptable, be it unreasonable greed, ecological insensitivity, or indifference to fundamental human needs.